So I'm Josh, and that was Austin, and uh, that Austin is not really singing that, um, but uh, they worked, Cameron and Austin worked really hard on that, and I'm glad that they put that together. Um, this morning, we're closing out um, our series called Making Love Stick, and uh, before we jump into that, I just want to tell you, give you a little update about uh, my week last week. Last week, um, there was 15 of us from Genesis that went down to uh, this place in Harlan County, Kentucky called Cranks Creek. And we partnered with, with three other churches, and there was 85 of us total. And we spent the week down there working on homes and uh, with students, uh, with our students and their students, and just had a, had a, had a fabulous week. It, it was my ninth trip down there with students, um, and uh, it was probably our best one. And I just uh, I really appreciate you guys' prayers for that and, uh, and support in that. Um, but I just wanted to, I wanted to give you that update. So this morning we're, we're talking about making love stick, and we're talking about the series. And we took, took last week off to talk about baptism, so I want to kind of update you or review a little bit about where we've been and what's going on. Uh, the first week, Paul talked to us about loving one another uh, as I have loved you, this, this command that Jesus gives his disciples to, to love one another. And in John 13, verse 34, um, we, we have the scripture that, where Jesus is speaking, and he says, A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. He goes on to kind of say that this is like the defining characteristic of a, of a follower of Christ. If you truly are a disciple, someone who's, who's trying to become like Christ, then, then your love is going to be the thing that marks you, the thing that marks you apart from everything else. And with marriage and, and really with any kind of relationship, this is the, this is the foundation. To, to love like Jesus loved, this this kind of love that surpasses an emotion, it surpasses a, a time in our lives, and it goes beyond, um, it goes beyond that. And, and this, is, this is what I, I would hope kind of sets apart a, a Christian marriage. And, and this is true for all relationships, whether it be with your friends, whether it be with family, whether it be with, with someone who's close to you. You have to love with, with, with some, with some, without expectation. You have to love in a way that, that is giving. Paul talked about that, that mutual submission that happens between a, a husband and a wife and the sacrificial love that has to be lived out where you're really giving of yourself. In week two, we, we talked about being the right person. So often it's talking about finding the right person. If you want to fall in love, you have to find someone who's compatible and there, there's, there's uh, all kinds of systems that people use that, that, that work very well for some that, to get to that point where they find compatibility, they find someone who matches and, and fits them. Um, we, we play a game in, in student ministry with our high school students, especially called speed dating. Maybe you've heard of speed dating. And it's a way for our high school students to, to interact with one another on a personal level, and they go around really, really fast. But, you know, the real speed dating is, is, is exactly that. You go around, and you spend a couple minutes with somebody, and at the end of the day, you kind of check off who you think might be the right person. But in week two, we talked about being the right person. And we talked about in Philippians chapter 2, it says, it says this. Do nothing out of selfish, selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So that selfish ambition is kind of getting rid of that. It's kind of a, a dying to yourself in, in marriage, where you really are saying that the priorities of the other person are more important than mine. And, and again, this might play out very similarly in, with friends and family where you are saying that, that what they want, what they need is more important. And so, so with this, these first two weeks, these kind of foundational things, it's kind of, kind of leading us to a point uh, where we are today. And, and this morning, I want to kind of look past the wedding day. I want to look past the I do's. 
and, and try, to, try to kind of explore what it means to stay in love always. How do you stay in love always? So after that, after those I do's, what happens? And, and we put so much into the wedding ceremony, don't we? we, we there's planning, there's, there's money, there's all kinds of organization. Um, it's, just a, it's just a huge, huge production. And, and I think that, that the, a good way to describe the wedding day is that it's the most unimportant, important day of your life. Now, sure, that there is, there is significance to the, to the wedding ceremony. It's a time to gather friends and family. It's a time to, to honor God publicly and state that. But, but ultimately, the, the wedding ceremony itself doesn't really impact the rest of your marriage. And we kind of believe that, and we invest a lot of money and time and effort into it and, and gather everyone ever around. And it is important, but it's not that important. Because how much you spend or how much you planned or how much, how much you have put into it or even who attends your marriage is not going to determine the success of your marriage. Um, this may come as a shock to you guys, but I'm not a shopper. Okay, I'm not a shopper. I, haven't, I literally have not bought myself an article of clothing since 2008, and it was a raincoat. I, I just don't shop for clothes. I, I buy books, and I, that's, that's about all, all I spend my money on. And uh, uh, I, have, I have a great wife and a great mom who still buys me stuff for my birthday and Christmas time, so I don't buy a lot of clothes. And I also don't buy a lot of things for our house. I, I, buy, I might buy some tools, but I don't like buy home furnishings. So I don't, I'm not in home furnishing stores very often. And, and a, a few weeks ago, I went to a, a home furnishing store that I haven't been into maybe ever. Um, it's called Crate and Barrel. And, and, and apparently, Crate and Barrel has the same pricing structure as movie concession stands. Because what they think something costs is not in any way tied to reality, right? So, so I'm walking around, and um, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm playing um, somewhat supportive husband as we look at stuff. And I'm making a lot of comments about prices and, and kind of having some fun with it. And I, and I come across this desk. And it's a, it's a tabletop desk, and so there's no drawers on it. And uh, it's got, it looks, the top is, is made to look like a really like, like rough old door, like an antique door. You've seen these before. Um, and it, it did look cool, but I immediately thought like if I was going to try to write on it, I, I poke through and the, the, through the paper and it wouldn't really work quite right. And I look at it, I was like, that's kind of cool. And, and so I just, I just leaned down and pick up the price tag. And, and, I, and I'm, I, I was just so shocked. I was like, not even like surprised. It was just like shocked. Like I thought it was like a misprint because it was over $1,300 for this desk. And I thought about it for a second. I kind of walk around the rest of the store and I see these prices. And I'm just like, I, I'm sure they're high quality. I'm sure, obviously, they're doing well. They have stores everywhere, and like it's still a, a viable business for them. But I just wonder, like, who buys this, and and what are they what are they uh, thinking to themselves, and what are they thinking when they buy this? Maybe maybe they they uh, they think that this is going to really help them somehow. And, and and like I said, it's great quality, whatever. Spend your money, that's fine. But but for me, I, I immediately thought to myself, if I took this thirteen hundred dollar desk home. And I took the, I think, like $50 desk from Ikea that I have in my office and got rid of it and replaced it with this $1,300 desk. I'm not going to immediately become a better writer. I'm not going to immediately become more productive. You know, that $1,300 desk is not going to change who I am. You know, I might be excited to use it for a while. It might, might kind of drive me. It might, I might try to justify it. Like, well, I spent that much money. I better do something with it. But ultimately, it's not going to change who I am. 
But, but that's kind of the, the attitude we have about our weddings. We want our wedding ceremony to be perfect. We want everything to go just right. And so we spend all this time planning. We spend all this money getting ready. We want our guests to be served. And there's nothing wrong with honoring our friendly, family and friends and, and having a special day. But if we think that just because we invest in that one day, the rest of our marriage is going to be a success, we're, we're believing a lie. And even if we believe the lie that the wedding ceremony itself has to go perfect, um, we're wrong. Maybe for you, at your wedding, you cried through the whole ceremony. And maybe the guy on stage had a similar experience where he cried through his whole wedding ceremony. And I didn't cry little, little just tears rolling down the cheek. I cried like ugly cry. Like, like snot and sniffles and couldn't talk cry. Like, I cried so bad that, that, that people were like coming up from, from like the seats, like handing me tissues bad. I cried so bad that I screwed up the ring vows. Apparently, Sean, who married us, and Heidi were, were, were prepared and I wasn't. Because when he recited the vows for the both of us to repeat back in unison, Heidi was the only one who talked because I was too busy crying. Or maybe for you, the guy marrying you screwed things up. And maybe for you, the guy marrying you was your brother. And so I'm standing on stage on the platform of my home church. My younger brother's standing next to me. His bride is walking down the aisle, a girl I've known for probably eight, ten years. Everyone in the church, I probably know 80% of them. She's walking down the aisle. I know her dad, respect her dad, love the entire family. They walk down the aisle. I say, welcome to everybody on behalf of the families. I look at John, her father, and I say, who gives this man? (laughs) Dead silent for a split second, everyone burst out laughing. But in that moment, I screwed up the wedding ceremony. Our weddings don't have to be perfect in order for our marriages to last. We sometimes believe that, that we have to put on a perfect wedding ceremony in order to, to have success. And, and I know that, that sometimes we talk about the, the honeymoon period. This period where we have what I call dating, or I'm sorry, residual dating effect. Because in, in, when we date, we're not ourselves. When we're dating someone, we spend more money than we normally would. We dress nicer than we normally would. We go places we wouldn't normally go. We say things we don't, wouldn't normally say. I know for me, when I was dating Heidi, I did something that I had, had, hadn't done since second grade. I've been rocking a version of this haircut since I was, since I was in second grade. And I heard that Heidi, Heidi thought I would look nice if I grew my hair out. So I grew my hair out for Heidi. And then when she, when I found out that she liked it short, it just got buzzed right off. But when we're dating, we do things we wouldn't normally do. When we're, when we're in that honeymoon period where everything seems to be going well, when everything seems to be just fine, it's very easy to be married. It's very easy for us to, to kind of go through life and just really enjoy it. Um, but in marriage, this honeymoon period ends when you have those moments where you look at your husband or your wife and you say, you've changed. There, there's some sort of disconnect here. You're not the person I married. It, it comes to a point where you look at them and you begin to wonder who it is that you're really living with. So for, for Heidi and I, we, we've had moments like that, but I'm going I'm to tell you a funny moment. 
we've had moments where we've realized that, wow, the honeymoon really is over. It was about a year and a half to our marriage, and, uh, and the flu was going around. And the flu was going around, and Heidi got sick. And I thought, okay, Heidi's sick. I need to take care of her. You know, I need to attend to her. I need to bring her stuff. I need to, you know, get her some crackers and some 7-Up. And I need to make sure she's doing it. I get the, get the wet rag and put it on her forehead, all that stuff, right? Heidi, when Heidi gets sick, she wants to be left alone. Heidi will, will literally get out of bed when she's sick. She'll take her pillow and she'll take her blanket. And she'll go to the bathroom and she'll just sleep on the bathroom floor and doesn't want anybody to touch her. And so I'd poke my head in there, baby, okay? Just go away. Just go away. And for me, this is very, very different because for me, when I was growing up, when I was sick, that meant I got 7-Up and crackers. And people brought a wet rag and put it on my forehead, and I got to lay in bed all day. And, and I kind of got catered to. And I remember the first time I got sick realizing, oh, <laughs> that's not her expectation of dealing with someone when they're sick. And I realized real quick that I needed, okay, I can't let my wife, you know, deal with sickness better than me. She does, but I was determined to fight that. So one night I got sick, and I remember, I remember getting up, and I went and slept on the couch that night, and I was very, very ill, and I, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And so I'm laying on the couch, and the next morning she walks out, she's about to head to work, and she says, Josh, you know, are you okay? Do you need me to stay home? Do you need me to take care of you? Do you need me to call anybody? I said, no, 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 no. You go to work. And she, was, she had like an hour commute one way. So she was going, going to work. So I lay there on the couch, and I, and I realized the pain is just building and building and building. I, around noon, I, I literally am like doubled over, and I'm calling the, the church out in Illinois, and, and I talked to the worship pastor there. And I was like, you got to take me to the hospital. Something's wrong. And, and I get to the hospital, and, and a few hours later, they're, they're taking my appendix out because I had appendicitis. And, and I remembered in that moment that I should have just been honest with Heidi that morning, and told her that I needed some help. But because I was trying to be tough, tough, uh, tough it out for her, I was, I was really uh, miserable because of it. And for us, that was a moment where we realized that our life expectations came into it were just a little bit different. And we had serious moments where we looked at the other person and said, oh, this is, this is, this is real. You know, you've changed a little bit. This is how it's going to be. And we've had to work through that. But you know for you, there, there are moments where you're talking about the budget, you're talking about kids. You're talking about what kind of house you're going to live. You're talking about where you're going to live. You're talking about your family interactions. And all of a sudden, gaps develop. A gap between who the person really is and what you thought they were about. And when these gaps happen, when these gaps kind of, kind of come up, we're immediately kind of confronted with the question of how we're going to deal with them. And, and when you, if you've gone to a wedding any time in the last, I don't know, ever, you probably have heard a scripture been read before. And that scripture is usually 1 Corinthians 13. And we're going we're to go to 1 Corinthians 13 right now. And starting in verse 4, you, you're going you're to immediately recognize this as a, as a verse that, that you have heard at weddings before, and it's a verse that can help us deal with those gaps. It says that love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. You know, I heard a, I heard a story about a, a pastor who's having a, a marital counseling meeting with a, with a guy. And they sat down and he said, you know, well, tell me what's going on and, you know, how can I possibly help? And, and the guy just starts a story and he says, well, me and my wife, we just seem to, seem to be fighting a lot. And every time we fight, 
it, it just it just kind of escalates to the point where she she just starts getting historical and I can't talk to her and I can't even begin to comprehend what she's talking about. And no matter what I say, she just she just doesn't listen. And the guy said, the guy said historical, you, you mean you mean hysterical. He said, No, 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 I mean historical. She just brings up all the past things that I've done. She brings up all the past past pain and mistakes I've made. And it's like every time we have a fight, we have to go through this list of things that either one of us have done wrong. So maybe for you, maybe to, to get, get through those gaps, the first thing is, is, is don't bring up the past. When those gaps appear, it can be easy to start to, to kind of assume the worst. But what has to happen is that we have to start believing the best about someone, about our spouse, instead of assuming the worst because marriage requires a step of faith it only takes one person to just to break up a marriage it only takes one person's decision to end it and for me that is one of the greatest fears in my life there's there's men in my family who have been divorced and there's there's they've been divorced and they've, they've experienced that pain because the other person decided it was over and I'm sure we can go around this room and you would tell me stories very similar to that. Where one person decided it was over and it was over. Where one person decided they were done and the marriage ended. Marriage requires you to take a step of faith, to believe in the other person. Marriage also requires of you to never, ever quit. Marriage requires that you never give up And marriage requires that you always fight. That you always fight for that relationship. And I think that some of the flowery wedding procedure, language, whatever, has taken the edge off of 1 Corinthians 13. Because there is an edge there that is about remaining vigilant and being determined to stay in love always. Verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 13 goes through these always statements. It says that love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It always protects. It always protects. I heard a, heard a story a, a pastor told. And he was talking about how he has to be entirely vigilant about his integrity. And he talks about how he has to protect his family and his marriage. He said that he is absolute about never spending time alone with someone of the opposite sex that's not in his family. That he is ruthlessly determined to protect that marriage. And he told a a story to, to exemplify that. He said he was home alone one day. And it was pouring down rain. And he got a knock at the door. He opened the door and there's a woman there and her car had broken down in front of his house. And she wanted to come inside and make a call. And he said, no, I'm sorry, you can't come inside. Here's my cell phone, but you can't come inside. And he said that when he tells that story to other pastors, people balk at that. People say, you can't do that. That's, that's taking it too far. And he says, I don't care if it's taking too far. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to protect my marriage. If you are, are being intimate with someone of the opposite sex that's not your, your, your spouse, you have a problem. And I'm not just talking about physical intimacy. I'm talking about emotional. I'm talking about spiritual. I'm talking about connecting with a person on a level that's inappropriate. And deep down, you know it. 
And maybe you justify it to your friends or justify it to your spouse that they're just a good friend and, and they're just someone that we really get along and they're kind of an ally at work and it just makes sense. We work together on a lot of projects. We've gotten to know each other. But if you are allowing that relationship to go to a point, even emotionally, that's intimate, you're in trouble. Because you always have to protect your marriage and you have to do things that are inconvenient. You have to do things that, that maybe are, are problematic. Because if you are not protecting your spouse or your future spouse, then you are dropping the ball here. Because you're opening up the door to physically becoming intimate with someone that you shouldn't be physically intimate with. You should always protect. You should always trust. Getting married is scary. Getting married to someone means that you're putting your faith in someone else. And once you're married or you're in a relationship, if you're constantly worried about what the other person is doing, about where the other person is, there's a problem there. If you yourself are constantly checking in and not trusting the other person, maybe you need to start asking yourself some questions about where that distrust is coming from. Because it's probably more of an issue with yourself than it is with the other person. You know, we talk about how, how our thinking affects our, our, way of, uh, our way of looking at the world. And, and sometimes this is kind of portrayed as like a, like a new age thing and it's like going to be on like Oprah's book club or something. But, but like the whole way of looking at, our, at the world it, it affects how we live in the world. Proverbs 23, 7 says that for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. How our thinking uh, impacts our lives, it changes how our lives are lived out. I see this with students all the time. This past week, we're on a mission trip. On Monday, I'm on a job site with a student, and he's got a horrible attitude. I knew at 9 o'clock that he was going to have a horrible day, and he did. I knew that he, his attitude was, was bad, and so his experience were, gonna, were not going to be very good. And so we had to talk through the day about attitude and about, about changing your, your, kind of your heart towards this whole experience. And sure enough, God worked in him, and throughout the rest of the week, his attitude was changed, and therefore his experience was changed. If you are always believing the worst about your spouse, about those around you, you're probably going to experience the worst. That's probably going to come in because that becomes your reality. And so, so, so Proverbs 23.7 just confirms this, that the, all the research out there about how our thinking affects how we live. The third thing it always does is that it always hopes. It always hopes. And the, there's a fundamental question here. Do you believe in marriage? Do you believe that marriage is something that can be, can be done well? Do you believe in the face of all the challenges, all the, the negative, negative stats out there about failed marriages? Do you believe in the face of all the things that we've seen and all the, the, the difficulties of marriage that it can work and that it still matters? Do you believe that marriage was something that God intended because if you don't, if you don't believe in marriage because of all the, the negative things out there, if you don't believe in marriage because you think it's too big of a task, you don't understand how important and how big God created, to be mar- created marriage to be. See, marriage doesn't really depend on what we do with it. It depends on how God uses it. God said that, that marriage was, was something where a man would leave his husband or leave his mother and father and join with his wife in becoming one flesh. And sometimes we think that marriage is only about procreation. That's why marriage was established. That was so we have a society and have people here. Well, that's it's very secondary. 
Because marriage primarily, I believe, is a way for God to give us a glimpse of his love for us. It's a way for God to show how much he loves us. To give a person who's committed to you for their entire life is a gift from God. It says that someday Jesus is going to come back. And when Jesus comes down and comes back, he's not coming for, for just any reason. He's coming for one specific reason. He's coming to be joined with his bride. He's coming to be joined with his bride, the church. That marriage is how this ends. That everything is moving that direction. And so when a husband and a wife come together, we catch a glimpse of God's love for me and you. Because this is what it's all about. This is where it's going. We see this in our connections that we have with friends, with family. But in our husband and wife, we see the hope. We see the hope of Christ, that he is making things new, that he is making things right. To stay in love always, hope. The fourth thing is that we should always persevere. You you will have plenty of opportunities, rightly, justly, to walk away from your marriage. You have plenty of opportunities to walk away from, from your family, from relationships, from friends. In life, there are plenty of justifiable times where you could walk away. We see this time and time again with those around us who who have walked away because of the difficulties, because they're problems. But if you've been married for a day, you realize that it's worth it. There's kind of this this idealized notion of marriage in what I call the Christian bubble. I live in the Christian bubble sometimes, and um, maybe you do too, but you're kind of always surrounded by Christians and everything is, is just kind of um, all your friends are, are go to church with you and the people you interact with go to church with you. You never really kind of step outside that Christian bubble. And the Christian bubble can be kind of a negative thing because you're not really interacting with the world, but within it, there's kind of this notion of marriage. That once you get married, problems are solved. That once you get married, that, that things are great. That, that, that life simply becomes so much better and it's easy. And maybe you've heard people say, if I could only get married, or if I could only find that right person, everything would be right. On the opposite end, I think outside of that bubble, there's kind of a fear of marriage. You know, fewer people are getting married nowadays, and for whatever reason, there's this idea that, that marriage is not something you want to be bogged down with. That marriage is something that, is, that should be put off as long as possible. That marriage is not a, an ideal situation. Well, well, neither of these extremes are true. Marriage is worth it, and marriage doesn't solve your problems. Because in marriage, we have this, 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 this reality that's full of these gaps. These gaps where the person doesn't really match who we thought they were. And so maybe you've encountered these gaps, and life isn't what you thought it would be. That you're not in a place where you thought you would be at this stage. Maybe you haven't been protected. Maybe trust has been broken, it seems like, All hope has been lost. And to physically leave or emotionally leave, it seems like the the best option in front of you. And to check out and to walk away seems like it would be easy, but it isn't the answer. And it's easy to be in love in that honeymoon period, in that time where things just feel right, but when you encounter that first big gap in your marriage, You have to understand that the love that comes from true commitment, from true determined commitment, is deeper and more profound than that honeymoon period love. 
In the first week, we saw, I think we saw a video from, the, from Tom and Shelly Anthony. And there was a moment in there where they talked about how they made a choice to stay together. They made a, made a choice, a commitment to one another. And how, for, how things changed for them. And I, and I hope that we can all kind of get to that point in our marriages, in our relationships, where we choose to commit to one another. As we wrap up here, I want to I be very, very clear about a few things. I want to be very clear in, about marriage as we talk about this, is that about what we're trying to communicate. And so I'm actually going to read something. To those of you who hope to be in a marriage that lasts always, start getting ready now. Don't believe that getting married or having kids will suddenly change the both of you. These things don't fix anything. You're just adding more variables and people who can be hurt. To those of you who are no longer married, let me say as clearly as I possibly can that you are more than the sum of your experiences, both positive and negative, and that in following Jesus, we are entering into a process of God making us new creations. And as we all find our way back to God, we all enter into this process with plenty of work to be done. And to everyone, let me, let me echo what Paul has said previously in this series. I don't know all of your stories or the details that have brought you pain. I don't pass judgment on any marriage or any individual. Because when Jesus talked about marriage, he dealt in reality. He dealt in reality with marriage because he talked about the role and place of divorce. Because when someone chooses someone else or something else over you, that pain is widespread and destructive. And so we recognize that divorce may be part of your story and part of your story of redemption. Our hope and prayer for those of you who are married is that you stay in love always. And our hope and prayer for all of us is that we would love like Jesus and strive to be the right person. And that for all of us, love can stick. Let's pray. Father, um, when we talk about marriage, it's so central to who we are, to our society. It's so, it's so important to what's going on here in, in, in Genesis and in churches around the world. But Lord, it's also something that is so, so very difficult, so very hard. And so Father, I just, I, I come here to, and pray and ask that you would begin to show us what it means to stay in love always. Father, that you would guide us, that you would direct us. Lord, that you would challenge us to find ways, to find that determination, to find that, that will to fight for our, for our families, for our marriages. And Lord, that we would stay in love always. Lord, for the, the people here who, who maybe don't fit into a neat box in terms of marriages or relationships, Lord, I pray that you are speaking to them profoundly. Lord, that you would help them heal from broken relationships and help them prepare for future ones. Father, in this moment, in this place, we just pray that, uh, 
that you would guide. And that we would avoid easy, simple, and, and false answers. But that we would find the, the truth of you. Lord, we love you. And we ask that our marriages are, are committed to you. And Lord, for those marriages that, that, that are missing it, that they would find you. It's your son's name we pray. Amen.